Hey guys, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. Welcome. You're Zach. I'm Zach. You're Krista. Good. Yeah. We should have like cool radio code names or something. No, we shouldn't. I'm going to think of that. No, don't do it. Hey, it's episode 43. 43. We made it and we are studying today in 4th Nephi. Small chapter but with a lot of good stuff in there and something that we hope will make a difference for you. So yeah, study tip today. We wanted to follow up a little bit from our last week's episode. The study tip went on for quite a while about relevance because it is so important, but we just wanted to follow up on a couple points from that. And it actually came from something that you said in that episode as we were talking about, um, remember our, our study tips for the next couple of episodes until we finish the Book of Mormon are all focused on the question of how do I engage my children and maybe especially how do I engage my older children, my teenagers in gospel study as we get ready for next year and teaching uh, the New Testament at home to our families that becomes an important question. I don't just want to sit there and read scripture. I don't just want to lecture scripture at them. I want them to be excited about it and to be engaged in it and for it to be fun. And and um, and how can we do that? And so last week we talked about making it relevant. And one of the things that you said was, I mentioned that we want to start every lesson with by answering the question of why does this matter? And you mentioned that... The- we should why this matters to the person you're teaching why this matters to my yeah. child not why you think it would matter to them yeah i um there's a, a a speaker that gave a devotional at BYU a couple years ago that's that's really famous my uncle gave me the cd of his talk it's it's uh, his name's john lund and i loved what he said the the talk was called how to hug a teenage porcupine and he shared some incredible things but one of the things that i loved most that he shared is the five things that teenagers want. He said, teenagers want friends, fun, freedom, privacy, and to live in the present. Which, if you've got teenagers, you know that's exactly what they want. I want to be with my friends. I want to have fun. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be free. I want my privacy. I don't want mom and dad to interrupt me or to bug me. And I want to live in the present. Which is interesting because parents want often the exact opposite. Where a teenager wants friends, parents want family. Where a teenager wants f- fun, parents want safety. Where a teenager wants freedom, parents want responsibility. Where a teenager wants privacy, the parents want openness and open communication. And where the teenager wants to live in the present, the parents are always telling them to think about the future. This is so, it's almost funny because it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, I love it. The problem we make when we talk to teenagers is we speak to them from our perspective. Even when we're trying to answer the question of why should this matter, we still answer it from our perspective. And I've heard, I've heard parents, I've heard seminary teachers, when I ask, why do you think this scripture, why do you think this study matters to a teenager? They'll say, well, because they really need to learn responsibility and they need to learn to be obedient. And the problem is that's not at all what a teenager cares about. And try as hard as you want, you cannot force them to care about what you care about. You just can't eventually they'll get there, just like you did when you transitioned out of teenage years into adulthood. So eventually they will think about their future, and eventually they will think more about their family, but they're not going to do it right now. 
So as you're teaching the scriptures, especially to teenagers, you have to get yourself inside of their head. You have to know what's going on in their world, what they're stressed about, what they're worried about, what they're frustrated about. It probably has something to do with their friends or their schoolwork or boys or girls, and it might be something even deeper, the way they feel about themselves, the way they think that other people feel about them, the way they feel about God or the questions or doubts that they have. And if you can sense that inside of them, and show them how the scriptures can solve those problems, address those questions, not how the scriptures can help them be more obedient or help them be more responsible, but how the scriptures can help them connect better with their friends, how the scriptures can help them really have fun in life, how their scriptures can help them in the present moment. Then you capture their attention. And once they sense that you're on their team, then they love to learn from you. Yeah, we were as we were talking about this tip earlier tonight, one of the things that we talked about was how a typical way that we teach is often, I'm really sick of my kid being so irresponsible in this way or this way. And then we find a scripture story and we use that almost as a lecture or our family's going to study this block of scripture because this teaches this principle that I want them, that they need to know. And I think that's when maybe the scriptures kind of get a little bitter tasting to mm. a lot of a lot of students or children or whoever it is, but maybe if if they see it in a different light, where that they feel that the scriptures are actually on their side, which which they are. They are. The last couple of years, I've done things with students that I really like. I have them submit anonymous questions at the beginning of a school year and tell them it can be about anything. So they can be informational questions about the gospel, but they can be anything on a personal level that they want gospel answers to. And nine questions out of 10 are all those personal nature questions. And what we do is we'll take those questions and that's how I'll start a lesson. And so I'll stand in front of a class and say, here's a question that one of your classmates asked, someone that's currently sitting here asked, you know, I'm, I'm, my friend is struggling with their faith. How do I help them? Or um, my friends all smoke. I'm the only one that doesn't. How can I stay strong? And we'll, ask that question and then we'll go to a scripture block and say let's study the scriptures and see how it answers that question so as you teach your teenagers as you teach your your children as you teach teenagers or youth in a church setting um, or even as you teach adults try and get inside their head inside their heart sense what they're thinking and feeling and connect the scriptures to those desires deep inside of them yeah okay our studies in fourth nephi today and in Fourth Nephi, we're going to cover over 200 years of Nephite history in a single book. Um, as I read Fourth Nephi, a story comes to mind, and it it's not just doesn't just come to mind because the story is about the first man that ran the four-minute mile, but the fours did connect, and I thought that was kind of cool. Anyway, uh, the story is this. The first man to run the four-minute mile was named Roger Bannister, and for a long time, the the idea that man could run a mile in four minutes was inconceivable. In fact, they thought it was physically impossible for a human being to run that fast. However, Roger Bannister has that as his goal. And so, of course, he trains and he works and he practices. On the day that he runs the four-minute mile, his first lap around the track is 57.5 seconds. Good first lap. His second lap around the track is one minute and a half a second. The second lap around the track is a minute and a second, or a minute and two seconds even. 
By this time, if someone were watching the split times, this looks a lot like any other race where the first split time is fast, but then we slow down on the second lap, slow down on the third lap, and the fourth lap you come in somewhere over four minutes. Well, the difference between this run by Roger Bannister and every other run before him is that on the fourth lap, he didn't run slower. In fact, he ran under 59 seconds on that fourth lap. And as he crosses the finish line, the announcer says a new, what was it, new state record, new um, British record, new European record, new Commonwealth record, and a new world record, three minutes and, and the crowd starts cheering because he broke the four-minute mile. I love that story because it teaches the importance of not just enduring to the end, but sprinting that last lap. Well, the Book of Fourth Nephi is a tragedy because the Nephites don't make the last lap. They start strong, and the first 20 verses are incredible. In fact, in verse 16, maybe starting in verse 15, came to pass that there was no contention in all the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. There were no envyings, no strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. We just finished the visit of the Savior, and what he did and what he put in place creates a society where there's never been a happier people. That's in verse 16. If you go to the end of the chapter, in verse 45, came to pass that when 300 years had passed away, both the people of Nephi and the Lamanites had become exceedingly wicked, one like unto another. And they won't recover from this one. This is the pride cycle that ends at the bottom. The next book, the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, is a book of destruction. And Mormons forced to watch the end of the Nephite people. There's some incredible lessons we can learn, both from the rise of the Nephites, how they get to be the happiest people, and how they lose it. What happens that fourth lap that destroys their happiness? And as you're listening to this, of course, you're not just thinking about the Nephites and the Lamanites. You're thinking, who are your quote-unquote people? Is it your family? Is it your class? Is it your work team? Is it your group of friends? And if your desire is to create a group that has never been happier, what principles can you pull from 4th Nephi to help you do that? And what principles can you pull from the end of 4th Nephi that you want to avoid? Well, we're going to first look at the progression to the wickedness at the end. We're going to start with that. And that's exactly what I wanted to point out was just that progression that ha happened. So I'm going to start in verse 20. Um, so, and he kept it 80 and four years, and there was still peace in the land, save it were a small part of the people who had revolted from the church and taken upon the name of the Lamanites. So we begin with just that very small part um, and then it's talking about the general welfare of the people in verse 23. Um, the people generally had become exceedingly rich because of the pro their prosperity in Christ. And all of the fine things that they, that they wore, verse 24 says, um, they were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and of fine things of the world, um, they and from that time forth they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them so early in the chapter they had this kind of open open system but as the people got richer that probably understandably got a lot harder um and then in verse 26 they began to divide up into classes so of course here we are just seeing the pride 
pride slowly seeping in, right? Um, and then verse 27, the people began to deny the more parts of the gospel. They, they professed to believe in Christ, but didn't really want to do everything. And um, then verse 29, they get, some began to persecute the church. Um, then in verse 31, Nevertheless, and notwithstanding all these miracles, the people did harden their hearts and did seek to kill them, even as Jews at Jerusalem sought to kill Jesus according to his word. So now we have people that are just downright seeking after evil. And they're trying to kill the three Nephites, <laughs> those that can't. They've been alive for hundreds of years, and they're <gasps> trying to kill oh, yeah. the three Nephites. I was skipping ahead to the other part, but... so. How bad do you get when you try and kill Aww. immortal beings? <laughs> I thought of the man that gave us the basket in the last He's episode. Invulnerable, right? He can't be stopped anyway. Yeah, they can't kill him anyway. Anyway, the hardened hearts. So again, these hard hearts happened. The people did harden their hearts. So we just see this progression that's going on. Um, and then in verse 42, towards the end, um, the secret oaths and combinations of Gadianton begin to show up again. So this very slow progression, I don't know the time frame of that. Do you know that, Zach? About how many? About 100 years. So this very slow, first the small part leading into, you know, the complete end of of the chapter, the it's destruction. In, it's, uh, the image that came to mind when you read that first verse of, uh, except for a small part, it's the old Mormon ad. Remember it with the ice cream and it has a couple of cockroaches in it? Remember that <laughs> yes, one? Yes, I do says it's all good except for the small parts or except for the bad parts and it just makes me think of um and this is this is hard because we know that we're not expected to be perfect which is a gospel truth however there also has to be some level of acknowledgement that small things uh, make a great difference for good but small things make a great difference for bad mm -hmm. there are little things that can creep into a home or a family that cause a great deal of destruction. Um, now, I think families and homes and groups of friends are extremely flexible and forgiving, but there are some things that when they happen, cause, cause destruction. And for each family, that might be a little bit different. Uh, for each group, that might be a little bit different. Um, I know in, in teaching seminary, there are some non-negotiables that I have in my class. There are some absolute, some things that seem really dumb. For example, I do seating charts and I tell my students at the beginning of the year, I'm mean about seating charts. We have to have them. And it has nothing to do with putting bad kids on the front row and, and good kids in the back row or separating trouble students. It's a randomized seating chart. I put all your names in, I click randomize. But the reason why it's non-negotiable for me is because in order for us to be a successful class, you have to break out of your comfort zone. You have to get to know everybody in class. Otherwise, you'll never feel comfortable talking about deep personal things and letting the gospel change lives. So it's a non-negotiable. That's one thing you cannot, and we read it, you can't be in a class system. You can't be in a group. You can't you can't join a clique when you're in this class setting. That's that's a small thing I will never let happen. And I think if you're a parent and you're studying the scriptures, you're thinking that about your family. What are the small things that I approach my my family and say, guys, these are the things that we just we never ever have. We just don't have them because yeah. they can cause so much danger. There was that actually from last general conference that talk on it was in sunday morning session one of the 70 talked about um the parenting his parenting but mm -hmm. he quoted and i was listening to it this morning and he quoted that um 
Doctrine and Covenants 64. I don't know the verse. Be not wary in well-doing. Mm-hmm. Um, for you are laying the foundation of a great work. And I always just, I mean, for me, it's that those, you're going one way or the other. If you're, mm-hmm. I always just think of that, of just, you're laying a foundation or you're. You're laying a foundation for some work in some direction. Yes, or you're chip, or something's chipping away from your foundation. And I know that maybe becomes a little, like you're saying, like you don't want to get too. We're not perfect at it. Perfect, but but it's there. And it's a good question to think. What are the little things, the little things, not the big things. What are the little things that I'm doing that are making a big difference? And are those little things making a positive difference or are those little things making a negative difference? And if they're making a negative one, you got to cut them. Um, replace the small. It was President Irene that said some of the greatest change we have in life is by changing small things we do often. And so if there's something you're doing on a regular basis that's small, but making a big difference or has the potential to make a big difference, change it and add in its place something small that makes a big, good difference. Yeah. The verse I found was actually a little bit before the one you read, but also from verse 20. So in verse 17, this is a positive verse that there were at the height of of this righteousness. There were no robbers nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites. And it's one of my favorite phrases for the Book of Mormon. They get to a place where there are no more ites. We've had ites since Nephi split from his brothers. And so for hundreds of years of Book of Mormon history, of of Nephite history, and thousands of years of Jaredite history, we have ites, we have divisions, we have this class and that class, and sometimes the Nephites are righteous, and sometimes the Lamanites are righteous, and sometimes they, they reverse, and they fight, and they war, and for the first time ever, we don't have ites. There's no division. However, in verse 20, the first small thing that creeps in is at the end of the verse, there began to, there were people that took upon them the name of Lamanites, therefore there began to be Lamanites in the land. That is the very first step that causes all of the destruction and all of the sadness and all of the wickedness that comes. They divide into classes. I know this is kind of a sensitive topic today because we live in a world that is trying to bring awareness to disadvantaged groups, to ites that have been ignored or forgotten. And that work is a great work to help um, to help individuals who live in privilege like I do, like you do, and like probably many of our listeners do, recognize that there are groups out there that have, have never tasted or seen the benefits and the privileges that you have. There's a benefit in creating a name or a label for that group. But recently, I've, I've come to stress and worry a lot about how attached we get to labels. As silly as uh, the labels you adopt as a fan of a football club or a, any sports club, as bigger labels that you adopt. I don't think there's anything wrong with joining a group and being a member of the group. However, when those labels um, cause anger, animosity, or pride, like they do in this story, it leads almost invariably to hate, violence, and persecution. A couple of verses. Verse 29. And again, there was another church which denied the Christ and they did persecute the true church of Christ because of their humility and their belief in Christ. 
and they did despise them because of the many miracles which were wrought among them. Verse 30, Therefore they did exercise power and authority over the disciples of Jesus who did tarry with them. They did cast them into prison. And then verse 39, And it was because of the wickedness and abominations of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning. And they were taught to hate the children of God, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. And so somewhere in our modern world, we have to be able to recognize differences between individuals and groups. We have to give a voice to those that haven't had a voice before. But we have to get rid of the hate. We have to get rid of the anger. We have to get rid of the attacking and the animosity. We just have to if we want to stay a prosperous people. Well, we started with that because that's the bad news. But we want to end with um, what, how they created that happiness and that, honestly, their happiness lasted for a long time. A good hundred years. hundred years. Built a society that was happier than any other and it lasted for a hundred years. And they so. did it. That's that's really good. And here's here's how they did it. Me, and that's that's really good. But here's how they did it. But here's, here's some of the, again, that same thing I talked about before, kind of the progression. Um, here's the progression on the upside mm-hmm. for them. Um, so, and as many did come unto them and did truly repent of their sins, were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they did also receive the Holy Ghost. That's starting off in verse 1. Verse 2, And it came to pass in the thirty and sixth year, the people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions, disputations. So what I saw there is that they laid their foundation on the right source. We talked about before the foundation. Here they are. They are converted unto the Lord. They're forming, they're beginning the whole civilization on a faith in Jesus Christ, a common faith. I like that it starts with repentance too. They don't start Mm, the happiest people ever. They just start as a people that is committed to changing what they recognize is wrong. On the flip side, the pride is maybe the opposite of that willingness to repent because pride says, I'm not going to change who I am. There's a verse that we didn't read in the second part where it says they didn't, they weren't ignorant. Oh no, this comes up Mormon. Sorry. They weren't ignorant of the commandments. They willfully rebelled against their God. Yeah. But here they're not. They're not perfect. They don't have a perfect society yet. They don't have the happy society yet. They're just willing to change when they see something's wrong. They're open and they're humble and they're moldable. And they're starting off by turning to God for that help. Um, and then here in verse 5, they didn't. it didn't come easily. I just kept thinking of, it was a lot of work for them to get where they were. Verse 5 says, And there were great and marvelous works wrought by the disciples of Jesus, insomuch that they did heal the sick, raise the dead, cause the lame to walk, and blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear. And all manner of miracles did they work among the children of men, And in nothing did they work miracles, save it were in the name of Jesus. So here they are going about um, spreading good, preaching, and and working. Working how God would have them work. And then down in verse 7. The Lord did prosper them exceedingly in the land, yea, insomuch that they did build cities again where there had been cities burned. So here they are. Again, the Lord is prospering them, but it is taking work. Mm -hmm. They're they're the ones building the cities and doing all of this... um, kind of the the labor, I guess. And I liked that the word I, I, I kind of thought of with that was action. They had this faith. They were going to repent and do better. Hmm. But it also took 
the action, maybe that enduring to the end like you're talking about. It's not all easy after that. There's some, what's the word? I don't know. Some action. Some action. There you go. (laughs) Well, I like that they had the Savior with them. He's not the one that created the happiest group. Now, of course, he's the foundation upon which this is built. But what you're saying is he came, he taught, he left. And then they had to work to create a society that was free from contention and fighting and pride Mm -hmm. that everyone could live happily in. Yeah, and all of this just leads up the next verses in 12 and 13 and 15. Um, They obeyed the commandments. They did fast and pray together, met together often. They continued to work mighty miracles. There was no contention in the land, and this is verse 15, no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And then we're led up to that verse that we've referenced a few times. And never, there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. So there we are kind of seeing that progression of what what brought them that peace and happiness. I caught in verse 12, they didn't walk anymore after the performances and the ordinances of the law of Moses but they did walk after the commandments which they had received from the Lord and their God. I like the idea that in order to build the happiest civilization ever, we need modern revelation. For them, it's the Son of God that came and gave them a higher law, not to diminish any laws they had previously lived, but this law is the one that's going to allow them to be the happiest people ever. Well, here we are in 2018, and we have been given some pretty powerful higher laws by our prophet. And if we want to live and if we want to create the happiest people ever, it's going to take adherence to those higher laws. We are ever inching closer and closer to what I think God wants us to be as a people. The uh, ministering is much closer to the way the Savior would serve than was its predecessors. Not that they were bad. Um, this two-hour block and the subsequent emphasis on home-centered church is closer to the way the Savior himself organized church. The first 300 years of churches in the New Testament were all house churches. So we're getting closer to that. doesn't mean that we're there yet, but I love the idea that we're building, as you mentioned, on the foundation of Christ step-by-step little bits. And so if I'm thinking of my family or I'm thinking of my, my friends or my work group or whatever your people is that you're trying to build, I'm thinking... Are we obedient to the laws we have received, to previous laws? Are we obedient to those the, the gospel of Christ, the repentance, baptism, honoring our baptismal covenants, our conversion? If not, maybe there's some foundation work to do. But if we have that foundation, there's, there's more to be had than just, than just going through the motions of, of doing the basic things. What modern revelation? What higher commandments can we find in the teachings of the Savior in the scriptures and in prophets and apostles, both in scriptures and in conference, upon which we can found our family's happiness or our group's happiness? Um, and so as we head into a new year, we've got some changes and the first of, well, not even the first, the second, third, and fourth of a couple of major changes that are, I'm sure, coming in the future. I like this. I like this principle. Yeah. Well, that's, of course, just the beginning of a study that you could have in 4th Nephi. This would be a great chapter to study with a family or with any group that you want to build together. As you think of your family, as you think of your race, your mile that you're running with whatever group it is, 
uh, I, I always keep this in mind. I said at the beginning that Fourth Nephi is a tragedy, and it is. Um, I've often made the mistake of thinking the entire Book of Mormon is a tragedy, which it may seem that way because it ends with one righteous man and everyone else wicked or destroyed. However, in the eternal perspective, it's not a tragedy. Promises throughout the whole Book of Mormon say that these people who have fallen away from their God will, in the latter days, be reclaimed. The gospel will be preached to them, they'll accept it, and they'll be brought back into the fold. And I think that's just a testimony to a greater truth about God that, in our limited perspective, we may look at a family, our family situation, or a group, uh, or a class, in the short term, a, a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years even, and look at it as a tragedy, that things aren't going the way I want it to go. We get frustrated with our own faults or with the faults of others. And we have to remember that God's view is much more expansive and even eternal than ours. Where we look at 20 years as a long time to spend in, in misery or sadness, he looks at 20 years in the blink of an eye. And so as you think of your four-minute mile, it may seem like a long four minutes to you and to your family. But if things aren't going the way that you want, know that God is patient, that God is good, and that he can save and will save you and those that you love. Thanks for studying with us today here in 4th Nephi. We are grateful that we have made it to episode 43, and thank you for being along for the ride with us. Have a great week.